Kaya Genç is an author and a journalist from Istanbul whose writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Financial Times, and New Humanist. He is the author of Under the Shadow and more recently, The Lion and the Nightingale. In this episode, I talked to Kaya about his investigative work in Turkey, exploring the country's history and current political climate. We also cover the difficulties of reporting in Turkey, Kaya's own journalistic process, and the many interviews he's had with marginalized people whose voices often go unheard, such as LGBTQ and working class Turkish citizens. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky. And today I'm speaking to Kaya Gensch, the author of The Lion and the Nightingale, a book that takes readers on a journey through modern Turkey. For everyone listening, this is being recorded at the height of coronavirus, and I'm currently working from home like most people, but we're working with what we got. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show, Kaya. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Uh, I thought it read like a novel. It was just filled with all of these gorgeous metaphors. So I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you today. Thank you so thank much. You. And thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. So can you tell me a little bit about your background? What motivated you to write this book? Of course, uh, I, I studied film and comparative literature at uni, and then I focused on English literature as a graduate student. And I wrote my doctoral thesis on uh, Hegel's influence on late Victorian literature. And since 2010s, I had been covering freedom of expression cases in Turkey for the British magazine Index on Censorship. Uh, and I was mostly writing about Oscar Wilde, Joseph Conrad and other literary subjects. Uh, since I began to uh, receive commissions from editors in London to write about Turkish politics around 2013. Uh, that was the year when Turkey was the market-focused country of London Book Fair. And also the same year, there was a big uprising in Turkey uh, that, that was named Gezi protests. And around this time, there was growing interest in Turkish politics among American and British publishers. And I found myself writing about the Gezi uprising and Turkish politics and Erdogan and all these Turkish-related subjects for places like London Review of Books and The Guardian. And then uh, I started writing my first book about Gezi activists and Erdogan supporters for IB Taurus. Uh, and the book was titled Under the Shadow which was published in 2016, just after the attempted coup. So I started as a English literature graduate, writing about Oscar Wilde for places like the Times Literary Supplement. And then I, I, I shifted to covering Turkey and I shifted also to nonfiction uh, around 2013. And the book, my my first book, Under the Shadow, uh, concluded with the protests after the coup attempt and my new book, The Lion and the Nightingale, uh, resumes that story and it starts in 2017. So, uh, my, the, the, and it continues my project of chronicling life in Turkey in English. And so the book is called 
the lion and the nightingale, and it's it's a metaphor that you use throughout throughout the not throughout the book. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the symbolism by behind the title for people who don't don't know? Yeah, sure. So after my shifts to a political reportage, I noticed that attacking Turkey's intellectuals and artists was an increasingly popular tool uh, for Turkish politicians. Nationalists and conservatives were roaring around the clock about Turkey's internal enemies, intellectual traitors and artists. And so people who read books were ostracized as white Turks and the, as enemies of the authentic Turks. And there was this polarization in Turkey. And I, so I wanted to show the tensions between the roaring lions, the Turkish politicians, and the nightingales who, despite the oppression, uh, tried to sing their songs and write their poetry. So uh, I, I wanted to structure the book around that tension between uh, those who wield power and others who create arts. Because living in Jihangir, an artistic part of Istanbul, where lots of the city's creative communities live, I noticed that there was an assault on people like us, not only in Jihangir, but in all different parts of Turkey. And that politicians had identified some political capital in uh, waging that war against the nightingales. So th- that's why I, I chose to structure the book around that tension. Mm. And are those, um, is that symbolism of the lion and the nightingale something that's frequently used um, throughout Turkey or is it something that you came up with yourself? No, I, I no, that, that, that's, that's not a figure of speech or anything. And it was also, uh, we, we also discussed this with my editor at Bloomsbury, I.B. Taurus, uh, Tomas Oskins. And, um, he was, he was in Venice, uh, while I was writing this book and, uh, for the Venice Biennial. And I think he visited the city museum there and saw lots of lion statues because lion is a symbol of, uh, the Venice uh, the, the power of the Venice city-state, and suddenly this animal, uh, in in our minds at least, be- became a symbol of political power. And the nightingale is a symbol of uh, also in Ottoman poetry, mm-hmm. uh, symbolizing beauty and uh, harmony and and uh, all the um, poetic side of things. So so we wanted to create a kind of poetic title and a poetic theme for the book and then place all the nonfiction bits into that structure. So many people think this is a work of fiction or even a work of poetry when they see the title uh, or a book or an epic book. But when, when they realize that it's about life in Turkey in 2017, they're a bit surprised because of this, because of the poetic uh, title we gave to the book. We're going to go into the poetic structure of the book in just a little bit, but on that note, there was clearly a lot of consideration that went into the aesthetics of this book. Can you discuss the thought process that uh, went behind the really beautiful cover for The Lion and the Nightingale? 
Oh, thank you. Uh, of course. So my uh, editor is a connoisseur of the arts, and he found these exquisite floral and animal illustrations from Seljuklu Arts. Uh, and there was an ex- exhibition at the British Museum last year uh, called Inspired by the East, How the Islamic World Influenced uh, Western Art. And that exhibition featured examples of incredible examples of Turkish art that were very poorly imitated by the Europeans. And we wanted to show readers how those things were properly done. The line and the tulip on the cover are incredibly vivid and beautiful to look at. And I thank the Bloomsbury design team for that. And I think in their vividness, uh, they carry certain power. You know, you want to know about the culture that produced this kind of beauty. And our hope was to raise the curiosity of the reader, you know, to, 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 to open the book and to learn more about this, about this culture. And so uh, the kind of vivid cover would provide that. Yeah, I have to say you succeeded. I remember when I first got this book in the mail, I was so excited to read it just based on the cover alone. It was um, it was extremely eye-catching. It's no, Thank you. Yeah, work of art, really. And as you, I think you mentioned, you said that the, uh, the Western or the British uh, interpretation of Ottoman art was second class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you see some attempts in the West, uh, to represent, uh, Turkish art, uh, while illustrating pieces about Turkey or books about Turkey or films coming from Turkey. Uh, but they always fail. Uh, they always pale in comparison with what the Turkish artists had produced in the past. I mean, I, I, I can't say that, uh, there, that tradition is alive today and we have these great artists producing that kind of imagery. I, I can't say that, but uh, we have very good museums uh, in Istanbul where those works of art are meticulously preserved and stored, and and uh, we get to see these beauties. And when you when you have access to them, when you look at them, they're they're really amazing. You don't want to look at modern art act really mm. or any kind of cheap iteration reiteration of it yeah absolutely um so this book is a very poetic exploration of the the current political landscape of modern turkey but just to situate the reader a little bit in some historical context can you give a little bit of background on the dominant political parties in Turkey right now, as well as the rise of Erdogan and um, the 2016 coup. I know that's a lot of history, but uh, you can feel free to go as deep into the historical context as you want. Uh, Of course. Yes, Turkey is confusing. But once you learn a bit about Turkish culture and history, you become addicted to it. (laughs) Uh, And I think you have to understand the divisions in in the country because we have this political divide 
in our political history that resemble the Democrat and Republican divide in the U.S. Mm. And also, I think, the Labour and Tory divide in Britain. Uh, so we have CHP, the Republican People's Party, founded the Modern Republic in the 1920s and governed uh, Turkey for around two decades as a single party regime. And a number of parties who represent opposition to CHP uh, represents the other camp. So CHP is always there, but and there's always an opposition to it. So those parties are the, the Democrat Party, uh, the Justice Party, the Motherland Party, and now the AKP. So the Democrat Party was very powerful in the 50s uh, before a military coup executed its leader, Adnan Menderes, in 1960. And so that party was closed by the military. And then we saw the Justice Party, another right-wing party uh, that opposes the CHP, the People's Republican Party. And this was very popular in the 1960s and 70s. Before that was also closed by a military coup uh, in 19. 19- 80. And after that, we had the Motherland Party uh, in the 1980s and early 1990s. Again, a right-wing party, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, free markets, and anti-CHP party, uh, which wasn't closed by a military coup, but which lost popularity because of the ch- ch- Turkey's changing political conditions. And, and then we saw the rise of the AKP in early 2000s. So the CHP is always there, and there is a conservative party that opposes it, and that's pretty much uh, all in terms of power players. So Ataturk uh, was CHP's founder, and he remains its eternal leader. So he's a key figure uh, to understand modern Turkey. And conservative parties, they rise, they rise to power uh, through charismatic leaders who often embody uh, Rex to Riches story arcs. So you have to know these different right-wing leaders to understand Turkish politics because right-wing politics are mostly built around their charisma. We have Suleyman Demirat, a poor shepherd boy from central Anatolia, who rose to immense power. And we have Erdogan, who also comes from a very modest working class background. And uh, a bit like Barack Obama, he had great oratorical and organizing skills, which oiled his rise to power. And he became the mayor of Istanbul in the 1990s. And from there, he became a national figure and the prime minister. And... So looking at Turkey, you you have to first understand the phenomenon of Ataturk, how this Ottoman general uh, founded modern Turkey from the ashes of uh, Ottoman Empire and the, te- the, the, the techniques, the tactics, the ideology that he used in this process. And then you have to factor in the opposition to Ataturk's ideology because uh, he implemented most of his reforms under single party regime and when free elections were introduced uh, beginning in 1950 there was a huge conservative reaction to the 
kind of ideals that others represented. And that opposition took different forms throughout 20th century. Sometimes it's more Islamist. Sometimes it's more Puritan, uh, but not religiously Puritan, but, but Puritan in according to Turkish nationalism and its, uh, value system. So it's, it's, it's very key, uh, the character of the right wing leader who does the opposition to what the CHP represents. So that's, that division is still with us today. And, uh, the new mayor of Istanbul comes from CHP, uh, whereas Erdogan was ruling the city, uh, 20 years ago. So you have to understand that division to understand Turkey. Yeah. You're referring to the mayoral election that happened in 2019, right? In June? Uh, 2019. Yeah. 2019. Yes. So, I remember reading that was a, yeah. that was a huge blow to Erdogan's party. Yes. It was a huge blow because so as I, as I was trying to explain, like other, like other right wing leaders, Erdogan rose to power as a defender of free enterprise, you know, religious liberties. And he was an anti-statist figure because CHP represented the Turkish state for a very long time. So the right wing leaders were always anti-statist and anti-establishment uh, because of their opposition to CHP. And Turkey was a very militarized country over the 20th century. And those right-wing leaders opposed uniformity and employed an anti-establishment discourse. And they did very well at the ballot box. And since opposition to his politics gained cohesion from the early 2010s, Erdogan reinvented himself as a defender of the status quo in Turkey. And it was quite the sea change in Turkish politics because, as I try to explain, it's the right-wing politicians are always anti-establishment, but with Erdogan, they became the establishment. And meanwhile, Erdogan also allied with Turkish nationalists. And now the government started accusing liberals of all political hues of being traitors. And when you look at Istanbul, it's Turkey's most populous city, and you could feel a certain resentment uh, against the new policies of the Turkish government, especially the immense centralization in politics, uh, because Ankara, modern Turkey's capital, became immensely powerful, uh, especially after the introduction of the presidential system in 2017. So when you look at history, when you look at 19th century Istanbul or Istanbul before the foundation of the Turkish Republic. The houses of parliaments were in Istanbul. The palaces were in Istanbul. So Istanbul was the power center during Ottoman times. And I think that Istanbul locals, especially young locals, they send a strong message to Ankara, to capital Ankara, with uh, this election. And they elected Ekrem Imamoğlu who, interestingly, is in many ways a younger version of Erdogan. You know, he's pious, he's able to recite the Quran in Arabic, and he's very entrepreneurial, and he has roots in the nationalist Black Sea region of Turkey. Uh, but Imam Olu also opposes uh, the suppression of freedoms, he opposes centralization, 
in politics. And he thanked protesters at uh, Istanbul's Gezi Park in 2013. And he said that they taught a great lesson to Turkey's political class about democracy. And he's young and uh, he listens to Istanbul's youth. And I think he resembles London's uh, first Muslim mayor, Sadiq Khan, uh, in different ways. And I think he even a few months ago visited London to conduct talks with Sadiq Khan. Uh, and when you look at the governing party, such charismatic figures are difficult to find since everything is based on the charisma of just one leader. So I think that's why Erdogan lost the elections because, you know, you can't, you can't be the president of Turkey and also the mayor of Istanbul. And the person he, he put in the, uh, as the mayoral candidate, paled in comparison with Imamoglu because he was he was just a uh, someone who was loyal to his power but Imamoglu represented the vibrancy of Istanbul's youth. Mm. Now that it's been almost a year since that election I mean has it really do you feel like it's really changed the political landscape in Turkey do you feel like um, the mayor of Istanbul is a a strong, I mean, you say that he has the sort of, he reminds you of the sort of charisma that Sadiq Khan has, but do you, who I think has been a very strong opposition in his own right against the Tories in the UK, but do you feel like uh, his mayorship has really changed the political landscape or the relationship that the country has with Erdogan? Absolutely. I think that the opposition now learned why the rights always wins in Turkey because they always they always position themselves as the opposition to the establishment to the Turkish whatever the Turkish state represents and now they they are doing what right wing politicians have been doing for almost a century and they said we are the anti establishment now and we can only achieve this by coming together because it wasn't only the CHP that supported Imamoglu. You know, Imamoglu is a CHP politician, but the Kurdish politicians supported him. The nationalists who didn't support Erdogan supported him. So they came together, they formed this big coalition, this big anti-establishment coalition. And it's really attractive when you see it. I mean, of course, in the in, in Turkish media, you don't see those figures because... Um, the Turkish media is very much monopolized by the governing party and um, you don't see those opposition figures there. But still, it all, it even added to their appeal. It made them more attractive. And so you see the Turkish government is now trying to refashion itself and to have some distance from the establishment with the Turkish state because, because, you know, Turkish people may be silent in times of oppression and they may not raise their voice too much. But when they go to the ballot box, they like to vote for the anti-establishment party. So I think, uh, the governing party, uh, has been trapped by its new discourse and, uh, definitely things have changed. Uh, in the past year or so, and uh, perhaps in the next presidential elections, 
the opposition will uh, again be successful because they learned how to beat the establishment. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as that, I think as that um, description of what's happening demonstrates, there's clearly so much in flux right now happening in Turkey. Uh, the future of Turkey in some ways feels uncertain because of all the, the constant changing of, of power and, um, you know, the circumstances that shift public public perception of, of power in Turkey. Um, yeah. So I guess, and, and, and as something else you say is that it, it, or something that you've encountered in your book and, and we'll touch upon that later, but, uh, it's, it's very hard to yeah. gauge sometimes the public sentiment because they're not as willing to express themselves, but they do express themselves in the ballot box. What, what thought process went into deciding how to write this narrative? Because, you mix memoir with interview and biography to tell this story. Um, why, why did you decide to make that, that artistic choice? Yeah. So for me, structure is everything, whether I'm writing a long form essay or a book like this. Uh, so I begin always with the structure and I make a, a big diagram of the book. I, I want to see, uh, where each component will fit. So the tone has to be set in the first few pages. And then the rhythm depends on how I structure the book. So I wanted in this book to have a fluid uh, narrative where we have the public time, which pulls the narrative forward with its own speed. So I uh, looked at the New York Times archives the New York Times coverage of Turkey in 2017. And then there's the timeline of my interview subjects. Their lives have their own pace. And thirdly, I have my own adventures, mostly outside Turkey, and devoted to explaining uh, the, my country in literary festivals in the UK or in the US. And that has a more meditative, thoughtful and philosophical tone. So... Reading about when I read books on Turkey, history books on Turkey mostly, they're often told blow by blow with lots of subheadings and a kind of struggle to describe everything that's happening in the country. And I wanted to avoid that. I wanted to eliminate most of the things and I wanted to create a different chronology built on three different timelines, you know, the public the private and the autobiographical. So it was the first step, the first step of structuring this book was, I think, uh, structuring the rhythm of the book. And once I established that, then I could focus on who I'm going to interview for the book, which details of my adventures I'll include in the book. You know, w w will my adventures be funny? W will I, will I just uh, write about things that, you know, I found outrageous or hilarious. So I, I, I had to find, uh, after finding the right rhythm, I had to find the right tone. And of course, finding the right tone also depends on, uh, finding the right subjects, uh, finding the right moments, you know, to interview and to write about. So 
the preparation for the book took maybe even longer than uh, uh, writing the book. So uh, that, that happens with me a lot of times. You know, when I when I get a commission to write a long form essay, the preparation always takes longer. I have to read everything and I have to think the structure through. So um, I, I spent around half a year thinking about how to write this book and uh, who I should talk to. And and there's also the logistics because this is a partly travel book. So I would, uh, I would be traveling for this book a lot. So I had to buy plane tickets. I had to find people willing to host me in their houses or uh, in places where they work. So, uh, and it, it wasn't a particularly calm time for Turkey, you know, 2017, mm-hmm. uh, just after the attempted coup and after the ISIS bombings in Istanbul. So it wasn't a very good time for traveling around the country. And with the peace talks collapsed uh, uh, between Kurds and the Turkish government. So going to the east was a problem. So there were all these logistic problems. But, uh, you know, before worrying about all these things, I had to find the right structure. So that was, that was the first step. Hmm. Right. And, and in terms of, of the structure, I think you write such poignant stories about some of the people that you interview on your on the ground through your on the ground reporting. Um, Thank you. Uh, how did you ultimately, because of all of these these logistic obstacles that you were just talking about, how did you ultimately decide who to talk to, and how did you decide the order that you were going to weave their stories the way you did? Yeah, so I don't like books written with a very hectoring tone, where the vivid and the powerful character of the author is a driving force uh, of the of the narrative. And I prefer to show my thoughts and preferences, you know, political, cultural, sexual, whatever, in the characters that I choose to present to the reader. So, which meant that choosing those characters was incredibly important to me. First, I wanted to find characters from different uh, economic backgrounds, different social classes. Class was, a, was I think, uh, the first thing that came to my mind, and then gender, and then politics. So working class people from Turkey are incredibly underrepresented in books on Turkey. Also, uh, people with sexual identities, different from was accepted in Turkey. That's also very, I think, un- underrepresented in the books on Turkey. And also, I found that certain kinds of political activists are not very easily found on in books on Turkey. And also people who live away from the center of Turkey, who live in the Black Sea region, for example, that's north of Turkey. People who live in small towns in central Anatolia, you know, you don't see them much and the foreign coverage of Turkey. So when I wanted to tell the story of a journalist, I decided to find a local reporter, a someone who works for a better 
for a small newspaper in a small black sea town and then try to paint a picture of how local newspapers operate in Turkey because we know how the Turkish press has been destroyed in places like Istanbul and Ankara, all these mainstream titles have been tamed by the central government, but we don't know how local newspapers operate. And they operate away from the spotlight and so on. So I found a local reporter by browsing stories in the newspaper Jumuriet, which is an opposition newspaper that reports uh, that takes reports from these small towns and put them in its uh, local coverage. I also approached characters whose stories I've heard about, and I heard from uh, my friends, like the retired teacher uh, living in Izmir, or the modern art choreograph, a modern uh, dance choreograph, who quits her job at university and leaves Istanbul to start a new life. So it is a combination of what I've read uh, what I've heard, and also about these characters maybe that I don't know about. So I would ask friends to point me in the direction of an interesting character that might be worth uh, covering in this book. And I, most of my journalist friends were excited by the prospect of such a book, and they said, you know, you, you want to be like Yashar Kemal. Uh, Yashar Kemal is this, is this great Turkish novelist who was also a journalist and who wrote these incredibly vivid um, articles, again for the newspaper Jumuriyet, by the way, uh, from Anatolia. He was a great traveler and he liked to, you know, hang out with uh, people from small villages and he would have a great photographer with him and, you know, they would create this kind of voice of Anatolia and... And then the, the, the newspapers in Istanbul and Ankara would be interested in publishing them um, because, you know, they want to give you a, an accurate picture of life in Anatolia. And now we've lost that. So that kind of journalism is crucial, but underfunded. Uh, and of course, the centralized government is terrified of, you know, even the idea of representing those small villages in Anatolia in a truthful way because you know, maybe we'll see signs of some dissent or, you know, some anti-Orthodox ideas, whatever. So journalist friends were really excited by this prospect. And so, and they, and they were uh, also sharing with me lots of ideas and interesting characters that they came across. So I think that most journalists feel forced to just report on what's happening in Istanbul or in the capital Ankara, around the parliament buildings and also the presidential palace. And also in Istanbul, there are places that are always represented in news reports from Turkey. But no one gets paid to report from villages. And I think that's, that's the, that's the most exciting part of, uh, writing about Turkey, this prospect of finding someone very interesting. So, I was covering the trans community in Turkey for a magazine piece. And I traveled to this small village, very conservative village, uh, famous for its soda, 
uh, and uh, not, nothing apart from that. And, and I found this um, this young person uh, who's about to go a sex change operation, and uh, suddenly I noticed the importance of representing these stories because for us in Istanbul, you know, LGBT rights, trans rights, these are uh, things we can talk about, we can we can protest on the streets. But in that small village, it was very personal. It was striking in the way it was suppressed because the, the, there's no one you can have solidarity with in public. And if you're a young person transitioning, you're feeling incredibly alone and there's no local community to support you. And um, I, I found those, most of the stories that I found in small villages very troubling. And especially if you're coming from an economically disadvantaged background, you don't have many options. And so I was going to these villages in the morning. I was taking a, uh, an early flight. And when I came back at night, I'd be very depressed by what I've experienced in the day. But I prefer it to finding someone on Twitter and, you know, having a direct message interview or something, you know, you have to go there. You have to see it on the ground. Otherwise, it's just discourse, you know, maybe right. someone is very outspoken and says wonderful things. But when you see that wonderful person surrounded by forces of, you know, conservatism or whatever, that gives you a very different picture of the person you're representing because all the things that person is saying gains new meaning when you see the background, when you see the context. And so that's the challenge for people writing on Turkey. Uh, but, but I, I think it's also a privilege, you know, because if I didn't write this book, I wouldn't, I think, travel to those towns and I, I wouldn't encounter these people. Mm. And you're highlighting people who live on the margins, as you said, that they're not easily people who are in the LGBTQ uh, community, for instance, or, or people from economically disadvantaged um, villages are not represented represented in the uh, dominant narrative about Turkey. So it must be really special to to find these stories that are otherwise completely obscured from mainstream discourse. Yeah, I mean, maybe social media helps us see the tip of the iceberg. We see, you know, a tweet or any, an Instagram post from that person. And you, you, you sense that there's a story there, but that story will never articulate itself on social media. You have to go and find the author of that post or whatever. Uh, so, uh, I think, I, I mean, I don't want to, put the blame on social media and say, you know, we shouldn't look at social media when we're looking for stories to cover in books like this. But I just think that the way people curate their stories on these platforms uh, can be misleading. Uh, so we should be smart and just uh, maybe use those posts as a, uh, as a, as a, as a, as a beginning point to tell 
uh, those stories in a more uh, contextualized way. And I, I think that the way that people curate their stories is a, is a central theme throughout your book. I mean, you were just talking about the rampant suppression of the press as well as the struggle of, of daily modern citizens to express themselves in Turkey. How did this inform your experience of writing this book? And how do you write critically about a state that is not only cracking down on free press, but really shaping the way that citizens choose to express themselves to you? So I think the challenge is to chronicle what's going on in, in Turkey without holding grudges or being bitter, because that's a very easy. I mean, you can be very bitter about the government and censorship and oppression. But, you know, when we are infuriated and when we feel we have to fight back, we turn into activists and then errors can begin to seep into our work and we don't want that. So I wanted to inhibit this maybe irritatingly and infuriatingly objective position where nobody could accuse me of partisanship or taking sides or being a communist or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the most freedom of expression violations in Turkey are self-evident and telling them accurately is enough. And sometimes telling them accurately uh, is more effective and efficient than any form of activism or any, you know, coming with a discourse, an activist discourse. Uh, and You know, when I come to the second part of the question, I I think because of the self-censorship, the gap between private and public selves uh, have widened in Turkey. And there's a party line, much like during the time of the Soviets, and people parroted to be able to keep their jobs. But in their private lives, they often feel and uh, say the opposite things, which I assume resemble life under the single party regime in the 1920s until the end of the 1940s. And so that creates a challenge for uh, reporters and writers. How do you represent the views of people when there is this gap between private selves and public selves? How do you get to there? How, how do you, how do you reach the private thoughts of citizens, you know, will you spy on them? Will you look at their phones, you know, by uh, surveillance tools? How, how will you understand what they're really thinking and telling each other? And I think um, that's the challenge for writers operating under uh, oppressive regimes. But it's not as difficult as we imagine because there's a thing called trust you know we, when when you gain the trust of a person uh, when they think that you're fair and you'll be objective and you will respect their wishes then they'll open up to you you know first when you point the microphone in their direction they, maybe they'll just articulate themselves through their public selves but when you ask a question about their private lives and then insist on asking questions about their private lives you know they 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 may open up to you of course of course it depends on 
uh, how they view you and the circumstances under which you conduct the interview. But once you gain their trust, they'll shift there. There'll be, a, you'll, you'll hear it in the tone of their voice. You know, they, they'll shift from their public selves to their private selves and they'll maybe in a gossipy tone or in a confessional tone that they'll give you their real feelings. And of course, that's a big problem for politicians because if people are, you know, keeping their real feelings and thoughts secret, uh, you know, you don't really know what's going on, uh, in people's minds. And, and I think that's, that's the dilemma with, uh, authoritarian regimes. You know, you think you have great control over your nation while in fact, you know very little about uh, your nation because because they have developed this uh, this distinction between their private and public selves. So I think for writers uh, who operate in countries like Russia, you know, China and Turkey, it's it's a great challenge, and you also want to operate freely. You don't want to end up in prison. And so you're always aware of uh, red lines and limitations. And I think you also have to be aware that your responsibility always lies with the people you talk to, the people you portray in your work. You know, you cannot just say, I'm a believer in this ideology and that's what I have to do. Sorry, I have to break my confidence with you. You know, you're always, I think you're, you have to be loyal to your subjects mm. uh, and, and people who appear in your writing. And I think that loyalty to these people should direct your writing rather than an ideology or an abstract notion. Well, I'll definitely second that. But, uh, do you feel, is it, is there a huge, uh, juxtaposition with Turks that are living in the diaspora, for instance? I mean, does the phenomena of self-censorship that you've encountered in Turkey really manifest itself in, in places like Germany, for instance, where there's a, a huge Turkish diaspora? Yeah. So I think social media very strongly defines the way that Turkish diaspora, uh, regards Turkey. And so in their view, many Turkish writers of self-exiled or were forced to become exiles, represent Turkey, continue to represent Turkey with their tweets or Facebook posts. So the view on Turkey is very much shaped from outside Turkey for the diaspora. And I think, again, the oppression, uh, the, the, the political oppression, is to blame for that because half a decade ago, Turkish or Turkish rooted reporters were able to cover uh, the country for outlets like the New York Times or the Guardian. But many of these reporters have been kicked out of the country. And I guess this is what happens when you silence reporters. There's no one else left to report from inside the country. So mm. people exiled to Europe or to the US. They create a narrative of Turkey from outside Turkey. And then the government says, but this is not Turkey. You are not even here. How, how can you 
talk about Turkey, but that's what happens when you kick all of those people outside. Uh, it, you know, it may have little resemblance to what happens in Turkey, but that becomes the only option people have to follow developments in Turkey. And, uh, and it reminds me of, um, uh, this, this Kurdish student that I met in Amsterdam. Uh, I think it was 13 years ago when I was doing my masters in Amsterdam. Uh, I had a Kurdish friend and he had this idea of Turkey that was, I think, forged in the early 1980s during the time of the military coup in 1980 when lots of Kurds had to leave Turkey because of, you know, torture, torture, imprisonment. And they left Turkey with a certain image of the country in their minds. And then they resettled in Germany, in the Netherlands, uh, in Belgium. And the, the, the view of Turkey that they had stayed with them for 20 years or 30 years. And they passed it on to their children. And so their children's view of Turkey, you know, has been very much shaped by this image that was formed just before leaving Turkey. So I was talking to this friend of mine in Amsterdam and I was trying to tell him that, you know, things are changing in Turkey. And I, I, I write about this in the book as well. So mid 2000s, I was trying to tell him that, you know, things have improved, that there are no torture in in police stations and you know you why don't you come and see the country that your parents had to leave and he said i was i was just under the influence of the cover the, the political discourse of the government and in fact nothing has changed and he was very strong about this you know he said i'll never come back and i i was a Master student, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't have any reason to lie to him, you know, and I, I, I wasn't like running a tourist, touristic operation or something. I didn't have any reason to profit from his visit to Turkey, but he refused. And I noticed how strong that impression, um, uh, is in the, in the Turkish or Kurdish diaspora. And of course, social media is f- feeling that as well. And it's, it's very shocking, this, this, this encounter with reality. And I, I, I always imagined this friend of mine, you know, coming to Turkey afterwards, you know, feeling that he had to do it because I was right or something. But, but then when the situation changed in Turkey, when we started hearing tales of all these terrible things happening in the, uh, in, in the country, I thought maybe he was right. You know, maybe I was under some illusions and I should, maybe I shouldn't have advised them to come at all. You know, I should, maybe I should have just, uh, I should have just respected that last image uh, that his father had before leaving Turkey. Yeah. I do think that that is a, a consistent phenomena that people encounter across diasporas is that when people live in the diaspora of a place, it's almost like not to invalidate, of course, the the terror that journalists who were exiled out of Turkey 
would experience, of course. But I do think that it is a it's a common thing for people in the diaspora to overcompensate by having very strong, almost reactionary um, opinions about the state of politics in the homeland. Uh, I think that's definitely something. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when you look at Nabokov, for example, you know how Nabokov's politics has been informed by exilic status, how living in Germany and the and then the US uh, under the shadow of what his family has experienced in Russia and how that has shaped his politics. Uh, but uh, when when you look at what uh, Nabokov has written about the Russian Revolution, when the left and the socialists had much more influence and you know, power uh, in the West, you can say, you know, he was proven right, just like my friend uh, from Amsterdam, you know, he, he said, uh, don't trust these words of democracy and liberty, you know, th- this is an oppressive regime. And uh, I think he had the last laugh in that. Um uh, uh, even though his view of Russia wasn't tested by the experience of visiting the country uh, after, after leaving it, I think you can say that he, he had a maybe clearer view of the country than uh, most journalists had. Yeah, I think I actually remember there being a part about this in your book about Nabokov uh, being extremely critical of Leninism and Marxism. And um, was that your reason for putting him in your narrative was to sort of make a bigger point about uh, how people on the outside can somehow hold up a slightly more accurate mirror to what's actually going on internally? Yeah, because uh, I wanted to write about the dangers of ideologies and how attractive they are. Because, you know, Kamalism as an ideology uh, became a dangerous thing when uh, Kamalists uh, ignored Kurds and all the uh, minorities in Turkey and just parroted the Kamalist line. And the same thing then happened with the governing party. the conservatives suddenly stopped all their critical faculties and they, and they just, you know, said, you know, we, we believe in this one leader, whatever he says is true. And there's a certain, um, resentment against liberals in Turkey and mm-hmm. also intellectuals. Uh, the, the, we, the, the, they, the, most uh, people call them anti. Uh, rather than intellectual, but entel. And it is like a way of mocking intellectuals. And, you know, you, you never like, you're never satisfied with things. You know, you always find something to criticize. You know, you, you th- that's why you can never have political power. You know, that, that kind of, that kind of critique is always directed against intellectuals. But you have, you always have to have that critical response to politics because you know, time and again the political parties that have very strong ideologies have become repressive you know both the Kamalists and the opposition the right-wing opposition to it showed that in the past century so uh, voices like Nabokov or 
Kundera, Milan Kundera, they, these individual critiques of these big regimes, I think is uh, something, something that we need to teach people around us, you know, because we grew up with these writers, but the next generation should also learn about them, uh, to, to learn about the importance of individualism and the the kind of rebellious attitude that they were presented and i think uh it was nabokov who said you know literature has is, is an evolution from the telescope to the microscope you know we we have to focus on the particular you know because ideologies are, are always about generalities and they're always about these abstract notions and we have to look at the texture we have to look at the detail we have to focus on the particular so mm. when you want to write about a country it shouldn't be clouded by any optimist ideology or some some promise of a better world you know this or that i, I think you just really need to take a cold and insistent uh, look at the particular. You have to take a life and really understand what, how that life is lived. So you, you can have a telescopic view of Turkey. You can look at the story of Turkey in its relations to other Middle Eastern countries. You can have a historic view, but I think this kind of book allows you to have a textured view of Turkey. And that kind of texture um, is only available if people are willing to give you access to their lives in long periods of time. So another thing that I considered while writing this book was this is not a huge book. You know, this could be like 900 pages. <laughs> there could be a much longer cast of characters. And it makes it even more challenging because you have to represent this huge country of more than 80 million people. You have to represent it through 12 characters and yourself. So in the, on the other hand, that allowed me to have more texture so that I could devote, you know, thousands of words to the daily life of a cleaning lady in Istanbul. Mm. And I, you know, I, I love asking for details. And when I talk to, when I talk to these people, and I, that, that's something I learned from uh, Orhan Pamuk, the Turkish novelist, uh, when I first met him, I noticed that he was always asking about my daily life, like asking, so, so how do you spend your day? What do you do in the morning from, from the morning until lunch? Always, you know, extracting more detail. And I noticed this is how a novelist looks at life. You always want more detail. You always want more action and you, you, you want to chronicle all these little details 
of a very mundane experience. So this book was a kind of excuse to uh, exercise that um, that technique uh, with those 12 people. And I think that you definitely succeeded in, in, in employing this microscopic as, a, as an ode to Nabokov or, you know, that sort of literary tradition, this, um, this microscopic, very textured view of different citizens who, whose daily activities might seem mundane to the, um, uncritical eye. But when I read about the cleaning lady that you wrote about, I mean, honestly, I thought about her all day. Yeah. I thought about her yeah. all day. Her story was so striking and so, upsetting um but i think it obviously told a much a much bigger story about what's going on in turkey uh it reminds me in terms of of representation you know you were talking a lot about exiled journalists and and their views of turkey i remember this other part in your book where you're at this party with all of these foreign correspondents and and you remark that it's just basically a bunch of journalists not from turkey getting to be the quote unquote experts on turkey um, yeah. And I'm just wondering, do you feel like there are any dangers to this? Do you feel, how do you feel about their portrayal of Turkey? And are there, are things that they often get wrong? Uh, maybe we have too many expectations from foreign correspondents. Uh, you know, we expect them to be brave and outspoken, but also accurate and fair. So today, uh, in the Times of London, I read a piece by Hannah Lucinda Smith. And she was reminding the readers of the importance of freedom of expression amidst the novel uh, coronavirus outbreak in Turkey. And when you read something like that, you admire um, the the how brave she is in writing this. You know, like discussing the situation in Turkish prisons and how the coronavirus can uh, can make us ignore the, their plight, the, the, the plight of political prisoners. So when you read something like that, you really admire the journalist. And when you look at, for example, BBC's Turkey's Bureau, and when you look at the intimidation they received, uh, and they continue to produce around-the-clock coverage of Turkey, and BBC Turkish has around three and a half million followers on Twitter. So when I, when you look at these examples, you, you don't find much, um, you, you, you find maybe less things to criticize. Um, and in the past, a, a handful of reporters and experts shaped Turkey's representation in the foreign press. But this changed, uh, in the early 2010s. Initiatives like Comment is Free. Uh, the Guardian had a website called Comment is Free, uh, where freelancers could easily contribute and give their view of Turkey. And so that really diversified uh, Turkey's representation, I think. And also the op-ed pages of the New York Times uh, that was edited by that's edited by Basharat Peer, who was living in Istanbul. And you could meet on the street, you know. And so suddenly we had a diversification of views on Turkey. And of course, the 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 correspondents uh, have to follow the main story, you know, 
if it's the immigration crisis, they, they have to go to the Greek border and report on that story. And then you can criticize them for not reporting on that other story, but you know, they have to report on this story because that's what the London Bureau or the New York Bureau wants. So I think the real uh, problem in the past was the comment section of things. Uh, the, 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 the newspapers were not very interested in how Turks thought about uh, Turkish politics, and they gave uh, all the power of representation to their own mostly foreign correspondents. But now you see most uh, in most respected publications, Turkish bylines give you a very authentic uh, view of what's going on in Turkey. And I, I, I think that as for the foreign correspondents, you know, I, I have this little funny vignette about you know, a house, a, 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 a rooftop party that we had. Uh, but, but I'm never, I'm not, I'm not in the business of, you know, mocking them because they, they, they have to put up with so much intimidation. You know, I, uh, I've been covering stories of foreign correspondents in Turkey for index on censorship and I heard so many incredibly frustrating stories, especially by uh, female correspondents mm. that I lost, you know, all, uh, all the will to make fun of them or, or in any way criticize them. So I really admire, um, the, the job that they're doing. And, you know, just today, China banned all the, uh, all the prestigious, uh, American, uh, reporters from you know, reporting from China, uh, reporters of Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. So, so this kind of a pattern set by authoritarian regimes is very troubling. And you want to see some coverage of Turkey in the Times of London or the New York Times. Uh, of course, we can say the reporting is not sometimes fair, sometimes uh, a bit too biased, but I think we have to say it's it's a good thing that there is some coverage of Turkey yeah. by the foreign press, and that is allowed because that can also be taken away from us. You know, it, it's very easy. The government can say, you know, you're foreign, you're you're agents of foreign influence or whatever. Uh, they can find a fancy name. And then what are we left with? You know, so I think that uh, foreign correspondence would be something we would miss if they were you know, kicked out of Turkey. Right, because it seems like from your portrayal of things that they're they're the ones that are going to get the message out about they're they're going to get to tell the story about Turkey because it's really the only story about Turkey that's being allowed by the government to be told yeah so it's yeah and also we have this other phenomenon where the turkish language editions of all these uh internationally respected media organizations becoming a force in turkey so for example we have the novel coronavirus crisis in turkey and where do you get your news about this crisis so 
I mean, personally, I look at BBC's Turkish edition. I look at the Chovela's Turkish edition. I look at Independent's Turkish edition. And, you know, you respect those publications. And Turkish reporters who have been forced out of their jobs over the past decade, you know, they work for these publications. Uh, but because the brand is foreign, you know, the, some people are you know, suspicious. They're like, you know, you're, you're foreign agents, but even Turkish writers who work for these publications are seen as, you know, dangerous. So, um, uh, I mean, I, I find this very interesting that we, that the only way to get accurate news about Turkey is through a newsroom in London or, you know, Berlin or, or New York, you know, but, but this is, this is where we are. Um, we only have time for basically one more question, but, um, I, yeah, given everything you've, you've brought it up already, but given the novel coronavirus, for instance, given the elections that happened in 2019, things are very much still in flux, very much in contradiction in some ways in Turkey. Um, in light of these sort of lingering thoughts about, about the new Turkey, um, yeah. do you have, I, I don't want to make you a political forecaster, but do you have, did your insight about Turkey's future change at all whilst writing this book? I mean, does it, has it changed in, in light of these sort of existential crises that are plaguing the global community right now? And is there something that you would like to see from the country going forward? Well, I think, you know, my diagnosis was, uh, that the new Turkey is a selfish country, you know, it's driven by self-interest. Uh, and I think that still holds, you know, self-interest continues to drive Turkey's citizens. You know, just looking at the national response to the novel coronavirus, for example, the first reaction was, how can we turn this into an advantage? You know, how can we survive financially when faced with such a catastrophic event? You know, that, that's, the, that's the reaction in Turkey. Now, I'm in no way judgmental about this kind of reaction. I myself don't profess any kind of idealism, an idealist ideology that would counter this type of selfishness. And I also remember the nationalist reaction to the 1999 uh, earthquake, you know, where thousands of people died in Turkey. And we had a nationalist help who attempted to ref uh, while dealing with the crisis and said, you know, we don't want foreign blood, you know, that we'll, we have pure blood and we don't want foreign blood, that kind of discourse. And this kind of, this show of national pride didn't go well at all. And in the ballot box, uh, the nationalists had a huge, uh, received a huge blow from, from people. And I think a certain kind of pragmatism drives people's actions in Turkey. Uh, and to understand Turkey, I think you have to look at these individual concerns. You know, will I be able to pay my rent? Will I be able to go out on the streets? You know, th th these are people's concerns rather than do I have political freedoms? Is there, do, do we have enough freedom of expression in the country? You know, we want those things. 
as intellectuals and writers, but we cannot uh, judge for not wanting the, uh, for prioritizing their economic survival over these things. So you, I think we have, to, we have to be aware that self-interest continues to drive Turkey, but it also continues to drive the U.S. and the U.K. and France, and we shouldn't be uh, under any illusions in covering uh, life in these countries. You know, we, we, we should have ideals. We should have, of course, we should hold these ideals and we should have standards. But we also have to understand people in their struggle to keep afloat. If there's anything that we can take away from this moment, it's it's very clear now, at least to some people, uh, that we're all in this together, that our very survival kind of depends on people taking care of one another. Um, but yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, that's unfortunately all the time that we have today, but I just wanted to thank you so much for being on the show. Um, for everybody listening, you can get Kaya's book, The Lion and the Nightingale on Bloomsbury's website, something that I'll link to in the show notes. But, um, yeah, thank you for all of your insight and for writing such a beautiful book. It really did read like a novel for me. I really loved getting sucked into it. Uh, thank you so much. And a friend of mine told me that this is Kaya's chronicle of the plague year in Turkey. And now we have this, we have this global plague year that, that we seem to be, uh, cordoned in. And I hope that all the listeners uh, will keep themselves safe and I wish them health, uh, and also a healthy mind in dealing with this crisis. Yeah. Here, here. Everybody listening, please stay safe physically and and take care of yourselves because it's going to be a bumpy ride (laughs) absolutely 